Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Yes, it's Thursday. And... Look, I know we've had Thursdays in the past, that's not a new thing, but what I'm saying is it's Thursday and this is a new episode of the Two Shot Podcast. What can I say? I'm sorry about the last couple of weeks. I apologise, you've all been very, very patient, is what you've been. Patient and kind, and what that's exactly what we need in this day and age. Um, well, I went on holiday... And then just life got in the way, didn't it? It's difficult and it's time-consuming. But I'm here to tell you we are back with a brand new episode this week. And it's with the one and only lead singer of the darkness, Justin Hawkins. And it's an incredible conversation. Um, what a lovely guy. We, we, we'd we never met. We didn't know each other. Um he uh, had been told that uh, this was a good podcast to come on to. So whoever told him that, I'm very grateful. Thank you, mysterious person. Um, And we'd been chatting and set up a time and date. He was in Switzerland. I was in Manchester, so we made it work over the internet. Sadly, not in person. Um, But we are going to get back to those very soon. I know producer Griff cannot wait. Uh, And neither can I. But this is a, a great chat, um, and we. I, I think you'll tell by the end of it that we both really enjoyed each other's company, and oh, we talk about all sorts. As you know, you know what we're doing. I, I must give a little trigger warning, though. We do touch on uh, drug abuse towards the latter part of the conversation. So, if. Uh, if you don't want to hear about that, then, you know, you can stop listening now or skip forward um, if you hear anything or maybe just if you're feeling a bit delicate, just leave this one. But it'll be a shame because it is a great conversation. He is really open, really warm, very kind. Um, we go all the way back. We talk about... Stage presence, audience, problems, management, grafting, the explosion of fame, how, you know, nothing's an overnight success, uh, success in America, uh, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, just loads of great stuff. And he is fantastic company. And I think you're going to agree. Let's get into it. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the fantastic Justin Hawkins. Enjoy, and I shall see you at the end. Yeah. It does that because it thinks we're broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? With the last 18 months, I'll take the applause where I can get it. Mate. Yeah, same yeah. here, yeah. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you feel the same. I, I feel your um, pain. Justin, how are you today? How is are you in Switzerland? I'm in Switzerland. Yeah, yesterday I was in. Oh, I got back two days ago from a festival. We headlined a festival on a mountain in Wales, 
<laughs> How was that? Um, you know, when, when you imagine doing something for the first time in ages and you're really looking forward to it, mm. and then you turn up and it's on a mountain in Wales and you've spent the whole of the heat wave in quarantine because yeah. of some ludicrous uh, bureaucracy. And then you get on the mountain and it's like a gale force wind blowing your hair into your mouth and oh, it's raining. Man, uh, it was awesome. Actually, oh, just wow. loved it. Loved every second of it. But it was kind of like, oh, fuck, yeah, this is why I hate festivals. Awesome to be back. <laughs> well, speaking of festivals, the last time I saw you, um, it was at Kendall Call and it was a couple of years, two or three years ago, I think. I reckon it might and- have been five years ago, that. Really? Yeah, oh, my well. God. What, what, from what I remember... It was a Saturday afternoon, it was blazing hot sunshine, um, and the band came on, and, and this is from my memory, you either somersaulted onto stage or you cartwheeled onto stage, greeted the audience with some very chosen expletives and got banged <laughs> into like the first number. And I just remember everybody just stood there going, they got really into it. And I just thought to myself, well, that's how you make an entrance. Right. You're coming on for an hour. You know, it's funny, when, in those situations, it's like when we come out and, and we get that sort of, what the fuck is that reaction? We forget that it's like, we don't do it like other bands, you know, it's because we, we live in a bubble. We don't bother watching the other bands on the bill. We're too busy, you know, reconnecting because we never hang out when we're not working. So we just... You know, we're very insular when we go to those festival sites. We go and do our thing and everyone just looks at us shocked. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of, from, certainly from an audience point of view, it's always been the way with you and the band. You've always seemed to have danced the beat of your own drum, so to speak. And everybody's, I remember when you first crashed onto the scene, everybody was like, what the fuck are these guys on? I know, but when we first started off and... and um like even in the early, early days when we were sort of like, um, we had, we had a manager who had been looking after us since like our previous incarnation and we hadn't done anything for a long time, but we sort of had a, a real kind of, um, uh, what's the word loyalty to her, even mm. though we hadn't really achieved anything. We just, we didn't want to, we didn't necessarily want to change it, but there was a manager that was sort of sniffing around us and he was sort of managing up and coming bands of that time, bands that were doing the things that we wanted to do. And I remember him sort of saying to my brother, you know, um, is that what he does? Uh, is this, he, is he just, what is this? Is this like a, a prank or is that what he does? And my brother's like, yeah, he does that in rehearsal. It's normal. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, so that was like, even from the first, first gigs, really, it was like that. Did you ever worry though, like at the beginning that people weren't going to take you seriously or thought that it was some sort of pastiche? Um, I, I think everybody, I don't know what it's like for you. I mean, it's probably the same thing. It's like the, what, you, what you think you're doing and, what, and the place that it comes from, you never see it. You never see people taking it in exactly that way. Mm. And I was always like, well, okay, well, if people like it because it's funny, that's okay. You know, if people like it because it rocks, that's okay. Um, but nobody's ever going to sort of appreciate the nuance and the things that you, you think you're putting into stuff. You know, I don't, yeah. you very seldom find somebody who actually gets what you're trying to do. So you just well, have to accept anything you can get, really, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I think so. But sometimes it's the same, like, with acting. Mm. Um, and it's very rare that I'll go around and, and watch the monitor, unless it's mm. for a very specific sort of technical reason. I know some actors that go and watch the takes, and I think sometimes it just revolves around vanity. 
sometimes. I think that's um, the only reason why I've ever done that in a, in a video shoot or something is just vanity. And I, I, I wonder um, if it's the same for you. When you're, um, when you're uh, doing something and there's a camera on, mm. you can feel if it's going to be rubbish. And sometimes you, you, can, you know it's going to be rubbish and you just have to keep going because you know, your schedule means that you have to be there. You're dedicated to the cause, but you just know and your heart sinks and you still go. I mean, obviously, I'm not suggesting you've ever done anything rubbish. No, I certainly have done lots of things that I've are rubbish, I'm sure. Rubbish and also, sometimes it's like, well, no one sets out, or very rarely, I think, anybody sets out to make something rubbish. Mm. And sometimes you just got to get on with the cards that you've been dealt. But it's that feeling that I, I, I get sometimes, and not if I'm working, because it can it can be rectified and I can solve that problem but if I'm uh, certainly what I've been doing when I've been at home and if I've been auditioning for certain things sometimes I kind of and I don't mean this in an arrogant way at all because I'm far don't know anything I don't know everything but it's like I can tell if a certain take is is the one you got no that's it Mm. I, I don't need to watch it back because I know that's one but because the rest of them have been rubbish all the pieces that I've needed haven't been together but this time the jigsaws all come together on this take and that's the one i'll do and i'll just leave it at that um do you you said you you do watch stuff for vanity Mm. but i think certainly with certain videos and what your band is it requires a level of vanity because it is about that posture. It is about, you know, quote unquote, being a rock star. Definitely. I think, um, I heard a story about, um, a singer. I'm not going to name him. Mm. We can beep it out anyway. Well, I'll name him. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you his name rhymes or sounds a little bit like, uh, that's okay. We can piece it together. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh so i i heard that when he does anything like photo shoots video shoots he has like a massive mirror so he can watch himself he doesn't need to look at the you know the rushes he doesn't need to do anything else he always looks fabulous always does the same stuff but i think when you when you have that you probably end up just doing the same thing all the time and some people like the side of your face that you don't like it's that thing of you know people get taking it in a different way isn't it also, I mean, you can't it, please it extends everybody. to yeah, that's true. Yeah, sometimes you can't please anybody. Sometimes you can't even please yourself. I mean, that's, that is my that's biggest problem. The, yeah, well, it is, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the reasons why I certainly don't watch my work back unless I have to. Mm. But I, I would never sit down and watch anything because all I'm seeing are the mistakes. Mm. All I'm seeing is, oh, we could have done that better. Because you know, you, you're not that you're trying to achieve perfection. But it would never be, I would never watch something and go, yeah, that was, that was yeah. very good and I did very well. That I just yes. wouldn't... Yay me. Yeah, exactly. I think, but then again, um, I know some people that do do that, yay yeah, me. I mean, I don't even listen to albums or, like, if I listen to Permission to Land, for example, there's loads of stuff in there. I was like, fuck, I can't even remember doing that. And, you know, mm. like actual vocal parts that I just had forgotten. Um, I just record it and then move on. And then when we play it live, it sort of evolves a bit. I think if I listened to the record, all the, all the gigs would just sound like a recital. And we'd never sort of 
develop and the you know every show would be the same so I'd, I'd try not to do that really how how's it been preparing for because the the tour's coming up soon and you're getting back to you know i mean not that you're getting back together but everybody's been apart but we're all mm. coming back together so how are you feeling about going back out on the road well i don't know if it's if it's like a if it's just like for a festival or something we tend to get together we do like an afternoon of rehearsals and then we go to pizza express and then like all the other bands that are on the thing are probably rehearsing for a couple of weeks beforehand. And we're, we're really chaotic when we play and it's, and it's exciting. Um, for, a, for a tour, we probably do like a week, a week of rehearsals. Sometimes there's production rehearsals if there's anything mm. fancy happening. Um, but the way it feels is like uh, it's just trepidation. I, I live in a different country to the rest of them. I live on my own. And uh, I don't live in a place where I can just lock it up and walk away from it. So I'm always worried about the garden um burglars yeah. worried about you know things leaking when i'm not here and i just and, I, and it's really like and as soon as i get to the first show i'm in tour mode and everything's okay and i love it i can sleep i can relax it's just a great there's there's loads of um what's it called routine in the day yeah. i get up at the same time every day do the same stuff do my show everything's focused on that show time everything else is just you know a distraction which i can push away and i've got people around me to do stuff for me it's just ace i love it but you know the, the period just before it i'm just sitting there going oh do i have to i think i get too that, comfortable maybe i'm just comfortable wherever i am you know whether it's on tour or whatever but it's good i always think it must be quite hard keeping up and i, I think this sometimes about actors who predominantly work in theater and they're doing big long runs and keeping not only the energy, but I suppose the enthusiasm mm. to go out on stage every night. And, you know, you touched on it before, because do you think the chaotic nature of the band helps to keep that, that up when, you, when you're doing a tour? Yeah, I mean, there's two reasons for it. It's just like, the first one is, in the past, you know, we've been doing this for a long time now, in the past when, mm. we've, when we've rehearsed properly and really put the work in, the first couple of shows, it all goes out the window. You know, none of it matters. Yeah. You know, it's just like the last show of the last tour or it's completely, things go wrong, you know, stuff that's completely out of your control and, and any amount of rehearsal isn't going to prepare you for it. So it just seems like, well, the first two shows are the rehearsals. So, you know, and then after that, it's kind of like my thing is reacting to the people in the room. You know, it's, it's, it's totally... There's a lot of interaction that happens and, mm -hmm. you know, when things go wrong, it's kind of like my favourite part, really, because I love the awkward silences and I love uh, playing with that stuff. And it's but just that's it, exactly. It's, it's a live show. You can't, you can rehearse to a certain extent about what you do, but as you've touched on, there is interaction. It's a two, it's, you know, it's a two-way transaction. You're, everybody's there together and you don't know what's going to happen. And yeah. that's, I suppose that's the excitement of it. I'm yeah. Sure. The other thing is like, a, most when I'm pissing about and I'm trying to do, you know, I'm basically just trying to make my brother laugh most of the time. And if, uh, you know, <laughs> failing that anybody in the audience, you know, not everybody finds it funny because it is it's really juvenile a lot of the time, some physical comedy, that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, but if one person finds it funny, <laughs> Justin, it, yeah. out of yeah. all those thousands of people, that's I don't, okay. I don't mind if it's me. I don't mind if I'm the one, you know, that's fine. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't think um, the things that are important to me in a show can't be, can't be rehearsed. Mm-hmm. And um, the chaos is what you're, what you're hoping for, really, because that gives you something to bounce off, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. But Justin, let's, we're in, obviously we're in Switzerland now. Mm. Let's go right back to, to growing up. Where, where were we growing up? Um, we were growing up in Lowestoft. I was born in uh, Chertsey in Surrey, but, um, mm. but most of my formative years are in Lowestoft, which is East Anglia, the most easterly point of mainland Britain, seaside and, town. And how was it growing up there? That's a really broad question. It's so different. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what, what, I mean, we moved around a lot, really. So we, we experienced lots of different kinds of growing up. Like uh, when we first moved to East Anglia, I was about six, and I think we lived in Darsham, which is like a tiny village between Lowestoft and Ipswich. And it was a lot of, you know, a lot of families who, um, whose dads worked at the power station, Mm. Or it was actual farmers, you know, um, and then there might have been a couple of little towns where people worked and stuff. But it wasn't like it wasn't like growing up in London or a city or anything like that. And I think that was deliberate. Mm. My parents were, were a bit hippieish. They wanted us to have like uh, they wanted us to keep away from busy roads <laughs> until yeah. they were confident about our cycling ability. Um, so yeah, it was. We had that, and then we moved to Lowestoft. It was a bit more of a town. You know, there's a lot what, of drugs what was, around. What, what, was the, what was the need for for the movement of, of, of quite? Don't really know, to be like. honest. I think um, it might have been a bit of entrepreneurialism with because uh, my dad's a builder, so I think he was doing up houses, flipping them, and we we happened to be living in them at the time. So it was kind of like right. that was a way for him to accumulate wealth, um, and. Uh, I think I think they probably wanted to introduce us to something which more resembled a, an urban upbringing, but not quite. Yeah. Um, when we got to a certain age, was it difficult for you and your brother? I mean, I take it you had to change schools quite um, a lot. I changed schools a lot. Yeah. Was that difficult um, for you both? Um, I don't know about my brother. I can't speak for him. I think he always used to walk around like he owned whatever school he was in. So the, the, it was a bit easier for him to adapt. Um, but I think when I was doing it, I, I just completely changed my look, personality, everything. It was, every time we moved, it was like a, a method acting. You know? Yeah, reinvention. Just, yeah, I totally decided I'll be someone else. And it, and it extended right up to when I went to college as well. I did the same thing. Cut my yeah. hair off. Yeah, I did the same thing up there. Um, and then when it finished, when I started the band... Same again, <laughs> but but when I started the band, I sort of re- reverted to one of my earlier personalities, which is probably from about eighteen to twenty-one. It's quite a defense mechanism to do that, especially as a child going and right. I'm going to reinvent myself now, and mm. this is the person. Mm. Was it? Were you just kind of projecting of? Well, this is the person that I want to be. Yeah, and also, I always chose a look that was not the, the, the trendy, you know, it was always the, not the goth, but you know, I just wasn't going to dress like the trendies. I don't know why. I wish I had actually, it would have been more popular probably. And, you know, probably would have 
I don't know. It would have been easier. <laughs> well, who 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 wants to be popular? Looking back, I mean, looking back on it, of course. I mean, I remember saying to someone the other day, I'm, I used to hate my name. There was never any Craigs at my school. I, there was loads of Dans, mm-hmm. loads of Andys. I wanted to be a Dan. Everyone yeah. wanted to be, I wanted to be in Dans that Dans always do well at school. They do. Carl, do Carls do well? Uh, very few Carls in my schools. How old are you? 45. We'll okay, so we're nearly the same age. Yeah. When I was growing up, there was, because uh, like when, when we, for the first six years of my life, I was the only Justin I was aware of. Mm. And then I joined the football team when I was about 13 or 14. And there were six Justins in it. <laughs> Justin's very sporty, I've always oh, found. Oh, do you think so? Hmm, yeah. That's interesting. Oh. When did the singing start? When did the, the theatrics start, I suppose? Because I've got this theory that a lot of actors want to be rock stars mm. and a lot of rock stars want to be actors. Mm. And I'm, I'm only basing this off uh, certain musicians that I know. And what about and yourself? So, Do you want to be a rock star? No, but I think I used to. I can't <laughs> sing for the life of me, but I, would, I think I used to have a fascination. And it was a, it, it, nothing that I would ever act on. It was just a, it was daydreaming, I suppose, as a child that... Yeah. Just want to get up on that stage. I suppose it stems back from my dad's love of uh, watching Queen at Wembley, mm. I and mean, we must have watched it about twenty times. And he just had that or- that huge, huge audience in the palm of his that, hand. Um, you know what that album? Because that's what nineteen eighty six. You mean what's that? There was a live album they did, wasn't there? After they did, mm. uh, after they did um, uh, Live Aid, and then they mm. did, and the, and the album had the helicopter with with Queen on it. It was the Live Magic tour. Yeah, and they had all the inflatables of the band that would go out into Wembley, and my dad used to have it on on video. Well, my auntie bought me that album on cassette, and it changed my life in exactly the same way. Yeah. It it was just like, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. My brother wanted to be Roger Taylor. Um, Obviously, I wanted to be Brian May because I was a guitar player. You know, I wanted wanted to play guitar. Mm. That's how I started off, actually. It wasn't um, never with a view to being a a singer. But um, I did have, like... I had like a, a weird moment where I, I was doing like, um, I was opening for a band, like a local covers band that were kind of made up of, it's like a, a sort of super group of the local bands, you know. Mm. And there was a guy who ended, or two guys that ended up in being in A. Remember that band? No. Um, so that, for, for, for around Lowestoft, they were quite big, you know, it's kind of, they were, they were the guys that were really doing it. And um, so I used to open for them but I had a completely unrehearsed, it was just me and a guitar and a drum machine and I right. would just make it up and I was called Bionic Reg and it was surrealist, um, totally ad-libbed and you, with me you singing. You would go and on playing, and com- just completely improvise. Completely, yeah, for like half an hour, three quarters of an hour. And I was 18 when I was doing that. <laughs> and that's yeah, the first you, bit you of singing I ever did, you know. You didn't even know fear at 18. You would just go, this is a great idea and I'm going to do it. I didn't even think now. it was a great idea. It was like my my friend and I made this helmet and it was like a, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was an American football helmet with two speakers attached to the side and it had something like a joystick on the top. I think it was kind of like, and that just seemed to be my cloak of invisibility or my cloak of nothing can go wrong ability. It was just like, and then we, we developed it a bit and sort of added kind of had things hanging off my guitar and stuff, but it really was just, 
it was just me re- reacting to the room, you know. It was just... But, one, but a girl came up to me afterwards, and that's obviously mm-hmm. massive bonus already. Mm-hmm. And she told me that my voice was like... Um, that I should get some classical training because my voice sounds like a grade eight opera singer. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And I just sort of banked that and didn't do anything about it. And I just, cause I still wanted to be a guitar player. And yeah. you know, I had trouble with anybody taking me seriously right from that age, because even if I tried to join a local band, I was bionic reg. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was going to say, you're not making, you're not doing yourself any favors there. No, by... <laughs> no I love to self-sabotage and I always have done. It's just been my favorite, favorite thing. Um, and I, I think it's, um, probably one of the reasons why my brother didn't really want me to be a singer for one of his projects, because it, I, I think he recognized that nobody would take a serious, nobody would really take a seriously. Nobody would really believe in what I was doing and I didn't care, but I think it was, it was more of a concern for, for the others at that, in the early parts of, of this band. And, and, you know, I, I did actually audition for our previous incarnation because we had a, we had a really great singer, but he wasn't able to connect with an audience. Like he was, uh, I would do the talking and I was playing keyboards and additional guitars. I was really on the periphery of the band. I wasn't actually, you know, in the beating heart of it or anything. I wasn't mm-hmm. that involved in the writing. I was, I was kind of, that was when I was um, at college and I'd come back to, to London and hang out with my brother and play with his band. And I was just painting in some sounds really. Uh, but in between songs, it would be me that was talking to the audience because I didn't mind doing it. And it would be this sort of disjointed voice from the side of the stage. You can hardly even see me because I was usually behind keyboards and tucked away in the corner. Mm. And it was a bit strange. So eventually I think um, everybody realised that he wasn't going to be the right front person and we needed to find somebody else. So he um, ironically ended up being me that had to fire him, which I didn't enjoy at all. He's a lovely bloke and it it was difficult. Um, but he could tell something was wrong and he challenged me on it. <laughs> oh. Maybe I was the soft touch or something, but um, so I just told him. And then um, we spent two years looking for somebody else. Um, and, really? Yeah, and at the end of that process, I actually auditioned finally. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember I was, we were doing, because all the music had become super inflated and, and uh, progressive because we didn't have any, anybody to guide it and there was no melody. So it all just became these huge soundscapes. And mm. I tried to sing over one of them. I ended up just screaming over it, as you would probably expect. Um, and I remember my brother lent in at one point and said, you're in! Like <laughs> but, but then <laughs> I don't think I heard him probably because I think he actually said, you're in tune! Like, I mean, I was just surprised <laughs> that I was, you know, anywhere near it. And... Um, and I lost all my confidence because I just thought, oh, okay, well, I can't even get my own band. <laughs> I'll just stick to playing guitar and do that instead. You see, that thing about connecting with an audience or, or not being able to connect with an audience and not having that sort of in your wheelhouse, I'm sure it's fine when you're recording an album because mm. there's nothing, you know, you're doing what you're there to do is to record the album. But when it's a live show, certainly I've found you know, you want that as an audience member. You want the interaction. I'm, you know, I remember, oh, God, it was some years ago now. I remember seeing Oasis at Finsbury Park in London, mm. and it was a big deal, and it was huge, lots of people there. There was zero interaction at all. Mm. And I, I, you could feel the audience just sort of feel really deflated and a bit shortchanged, I suppose. Mm. You know, we want that. And I'm sure most bands want that. 
Otherwise, you're just going on just to play your songs and walk off stage. I can't really see how much fun that would would be. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to do it. I think if you, if you have a beautiful voice and, and the only way you express yourself ever is through song, then I think that's okay. I mean, sometimes it's quite, um, there's a real mystique to a person that can't do that. Mm. Um, but you've got to look a certain way. I think Liam's got the look, you know. Um, but I think if there's somebody who doesn't look like that and they can't make eye contact, I mean, because it, it can be as simple as eye contact, you know, just finding like a few anchor points in a crowd and just using them to, as a sort of, I don't know, a go-to set of eyes that you can lock lock in with when you're when you're addressing the crowd. You can't just you can't just look at it as a as a as an entity, can you? You've oh do, my god, you no, it'd be so overwhelming, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think people do feel overwhelmed, but maybe maybe there's some techniques that can be taught. You know, I think maybe it is just like find find a set of eyes, you know, and use them. Because they'll appreciate it. And it is that thing of if you can reach just one person. But I think it's infectious. And if you have any sort of interaction with any member of an audience, immediately you've got the room. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. With, and with size of venues for you as a band, do you sort of, does, it, does the show morph or do you, does the theatricality of it change with the different sizes of venues? I think it does because I think when you're, the theatricality comes from the heart in the smaller places. And I think you can just use your body um, to achieve those results. Um, but there's lots of tricks for bigger stages. I think if you're in a small stage, you can wear a black suit and be really imposing. Mm-hmm. But I think it gets lost if you're playing in a stadium. I think you need, to wear, I think you need to wear a white suit, if anything. Yeah. And um, so there's tricks like that. Um, and I think a lot of the theatricality comes from the production. I mean, if I pay, if I pay, like, I don't know, a hundred quid, <laughs> it shows how out of touch I am. If I pay, if I pay any money at all for a ticket, <laughs> whatever it costs, I'm not really Very sure. Good. It's been a while. But, um, you know, if I pay for a ticket and I go and see a big show, I want to see a good portion of that being spent on production. I want to see moving light rigs. I want to see pyro, if it's mm-hmm. safe to do so. If I see flying, I'm over the moon. Um, costumes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, occasionally a video wall will do it if, it's, if the content that's up there is, is well thought out. And like, I, I love going to see Depeche Mode. I think they're really good at that. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of production, it's just awesome. Um, and it's really clever the way they do it. But... Um, yeah, but I think if you don't get that and you just get a guy in a stadium, you've got to be a special performer to be able to connect with, what would it be, 100,000 people on yeah. the stage. Yeah, and, and they're few and far between, mm. aren't they? There are, there are folk like that around. Oh, yeah. You know, but as you say, they're, they're, they're a rare breed. And some, sadly, no longer with us. Very true. So interesting that that girl came up to you and... She obviously had a good ear because she said about the uh, the operatic quality. She, I think she was voice. a violinist. Uh, right. Something like that. Um, it's been a while, but we did have, have a little fascination for one another for a while after that. <laughs> so <laughs> her, her, you know, her motivation might not have been entirely musical. Yeah, but I think she was right because 
it is an extraordinary voice. I don't know what the the scale of the levels are on what the I, I'm not singer, but I'm talking about octaves. <laughs> octaves, here. yeah. I think when you hear a darkness record, like if you listen to the second album, not many people do, but if you did happen to listen to that, there's a lot of sort of banked up harmonies that we were doing with um, Roy Thomas Baker, who produced Bohemian Rhapsody, so he knew how to do, you know, to arrange vo- backing vocals in that operatic and and sprawling way. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why we wanted to work with him. Um, but I, all those voices are mine. So there's some that are super low, like uh, sounds like a Russian male voice choir. And there's some stuff that's probably soprano. I'm not really sure, but there's a few octaves in there. I think I, I probably, if I stood at a piano, I could probably sing every note within sort of three or three and a bit octaves. I think it's not that wide. It's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not world beating, but I think a lot of singing is just anatomy and you you have to play with the hands, you know, the cards that you're dealt. Yeah. Um, and, and anatomy is, is, is a really important part of that. There's, there's a singer called, uh, I've forgotten his name now. He's, uh, I, what's his name? It's gone. It's gone. But there's a kid in, there's a kid in, uh, I think he might be, um, from Uzbekistan or something like that who's got like a six octave range Jesus. and it is preposterous. I mean, that like when he's singing low, it's, it's hitting you in the chest and when it's high, it's hurting your ears. It's amazing. And he sings everything in between with loads of different kind of emotional variety and all those, all those parts of his range. I mean, I've heard like, um, like some people get, they register like a super low note, but it's by doing that kind of, um, they do the sort of heavy metal, not the, you know, the fresh singing, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which I don't think you can really call singing because I think there's no, there's no expression in it. There's no control of the note. It just happens to be a low note, by, mm. but it's the same note. It's a monotonous kind of growl. And I think that, that most people probably have two or three octaves if they're, if they're, you know, if they practice and they develop it and use it correctly. Um, when did your confidence, because, you know, you you said singing wasn't really on the cards. It was mm. all about the guitar. So when did the confidence in your sort of vocal ability begin to grow? Um, well, we did three shows in 2000. Um, I mean, I was, I was I, with, with the, the stuff when I was, um, you know, when I was 18 and that little bit of singing there that was just a bit of fun really. But I think that, I think that the, the confidence really have had to, had to sort of kick in when we started doing the darkness. Cause it seemed like there's a lot at stake just by being a band that plays in London. You've got the eyes of the industry and all of your friends uh, on you from the yeah. first gig. And what happens is like you do three or four gigs and the friends stop coming, you know? So you did, have to did make that happen. No, well, that's what happens in every band. You know, it's like with the darkness, there was a, a crossover. Our friends stopped coming, but our fans started coming and people that just knew us because of our music started coming. It was mm. really like a very, a very quick, uh, crossfade <laughs> for want of a, an actual expression. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it, so there was a, that's the worst part really. Cause that, that's when you really need to have balls because there, there could be a little lull or a little plateau in your popularity or, you know, perceived popularity because when your friends stop coming you've got you've got to have a fan base yeah and you, you only get about three or four shows to do that 
Um, so I remember the, I, I was aware of this because we'd experienced it before with the previous band. Um, and I thought I needed, a, I needed a safety net, really. So if the show's not going well, my plan was to take all of my clothes off and start crying. And I thought at least, you know, at least I'd remember. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and um, so what happened was, like, I, had, I, I wear glasses usually. I started the show in glasses, T-shirt and jeans. I was already really into sort of ACDC and Bon Scott and all that sort of stuff. And he was my sort of performance idol for the early parts of my singing career. And um, so it was okay. I mean, I was, I was really shitting myself. And then after about a couple of songs, took the shirt off. and was like, oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> That's better. That's better. Get rid of the glasses, you know, just go for it. And I, was, I wasn't in shape. It was just a guy with his shirt off, you know, <laughs> in a pub. It was brilliant. Um, and after like uh, the second show, I found that my tiptoes were on the edge of the stage and I was right in people's faces. Third show... I was in the crowd. <laughs> oh, yeah. About, yeah, yeah. And this, we're, we're always playing at the same place. It was, um, it was the Monarch in um, Camden. I'm not sure if you know that place. Well, I do because I used to live in Camden. Right. Uh, for a fair few years. I mean, I lived all around when I lived what, in London. What period was that when you lived in Camden? Uh, from... What are we now? So... 2000 and I want to say 2005. Okay. So it was already, it already changed by then, I think, because that's when around about then it probably turned into the bar fly. That's right. So before yeah. it was the Monarch and we were playing in it while it was still the Monarch. Um, the, the room upstairs is, I don't know how many people it holds, probably 150 or something. Mm. Um, but by the third show, it was packed, you know, we would, we, we started off opening as well. That's another thing. We started off opening. We were getting higher up the bill just at the Monarch and it became a sort of residency. We played there a few more times um, in 2001. And then we played, there was one show when we played in this pub in Ballam <laughs> and it had sort of like a, a venue, uh, you know, an events space at the back of this pub. And we did feel like it was, um, it felt like some of the clientele were perhaps more right wing than us. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say it was like a neo Nazis. I'm not, you know, the Hollywood version would be a neo Nazi right. thing, you know, but it wasn't like that. It was, but it just felt a bit hostile. And obviously I'm campus Christmas sometimes, you know, <laughs> and I just picked up my first cat suit from principal dancewear in Ballam. And uh, that was the, when the cat suit came out, um, right. which is basically a see-through dancing leotard. Um, with a few modifications on it. Um, but I started doing that in 2001. Um, and I was urged by management and band and fans to stop wearing it because you can see everything. <laughs> yeah. It, was, it wasn't, you know, it needed, I needed to develop that really. So I, so I stopped again <laughs> after a while until, until we could afford a, a proper one. <laughs> but, you know, so- it, it basically it started, it started immediately. Um, the transition into stupidly confident but it's like what you've touched on. You said, you know, you've got three or four shows and you've got to hit the ground running. I suppose you've got to make your mark and go, we're here and this is what we do. Mm. Come on board. I remember when we played in America for the first time and we had like, um, we'd recorded 
what what ended up being the final recordings of I believe in a thing called love and love is only a feeling and also love on the rocks uh, with no ice so we had these brilliant recordings and uh we couldn't get any interest in the UK but in America it was it was different I, I think there wasn't like um, a suspicion that we might be taking the piss out of it they just sort of seemed to take it at face value so we had some sort of vague label interest from America immediately um, and we were invited to go and play at South by Southwest, which is like the big industry kind of. Yeah. Uh, it's in Austin and every bar and every restaurant in Austin becomes a music venue and people who are exciting in the music trade throughout the world go there. And we factored in another show, at, which was at the, I think it was the Roxy. It was supporting some, a singer songwriter of some sort. Um, and I remember when we played at the Roxy and we, <laughs> and I, I think during the course of the show, I probably ran about 10 miles. I was, I was completely drenched in sweat, wiped out, and we just completely kicked its ass. You know, we tried, we gave it everything. Um, and I remember sitting in the dressing room, totally shattered, and I could hear, I could hear the uh, manager of the, of the main attraction talking to the main attraction and reassuring him that, you know, it's okay, you know, standing still is great. It's iconic. You don't have to run. <laughs> <laughs> we'd really got in his head you know so so you could feel it you could feel stuff happening for us you know just and people being nervous about house opening for them as well i mean it took the only bands that would take us on tour were the ones that really had balls so the, the wild hearts took us out and that was awesome and then the next big thing that happened was def leopard in 2003 really yeah i mean um, how was that well you can imagine it like somebody came up to me um I think it was at a party or um, maybe it was after a show or something in, uh, in, at the end of 2002 and nobody knew who we were really. Um, and they said to me, oh yeah, your band's really exciting. Um, I reckon you're going to get a call from Def Leppard soon. And she, was, she worked for, a, a, it must have been like a booking agency or something like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, cool, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, but then we did get that call and it was like... Uh, it was because Joe Elliott is aware of all the music. You know, he's, uh, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of music through time and into the future as well. He really keeps his finger on the pulse with exciting new stuff. And he wanted to take us out there and sort of be the guy that took us out. Um, and he became like the patron saint of uh, the darkness for a while. Um, and when you're supporting, because obviously the people that have paid their tickets, they've bought for the headline act. Mm. So when you're supporting do you have to really go out there and give it everything to try and win them over? Or do you just go out there and just do your thing? Do you, I suppose well, just the mindset you know change. I think for us and for me, giving it everything is, that is it. You know, mm. you, there's no other way to do it really. So no, there's no half measures, is there? No, it's got to be like, we, whenever I go out there, so I'm just, I'm treating it like it's my show and I'm, always uh is it deferential uh to the main attraction i'm always saying oh i bet you can't wait for this lot i'm really happy to be here blah 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 but look at this <laughs> yeah you know um see me dance um, but what else can you do i suppose you you know you can't go out there and um i used to get told because i'm six foot four and a half yeah. and when i went to drama school i used to get told off all the time because they said that i was apologizing for my height because ah. i was always sort of you can't just 
you know, you can't go out there. Do you, like, with do, you do that because you because you because you're intimidating? Did you feel in, like you're intimidating your other uh, your I, counterparts? I, I suppose. Um, I suppose it's a bit like going back to what I was saying about school as well. I, I didn't want to be a Craig. I wanted to be a Dan. I, I suppose physically, I didn't want to stand out. Uh-huh. I wanted to sort of blend in. Whereas that's obviously that's completely wrong because you're an actor. You need to stand out. Mm. But you know, supporting another band, you can't go out there. Uh, apologizing for being there can you you've yeah. got to go out there and go this is what we do i had a situation uh two years ago i think we supported guns and roses at the um the big stadium in zurich did they turn up late actually they didn't that time i've got oh, a few they? i've had a few experiences supporting guns and roses and and there was one i'll tell you one time we played in uh where was it i think it was um mallorca Mm. and um, it was obviously a big stadium situation, uh, open air. We did our show, came off stage about nine o'clock, I suppose, and we smashed it. It was awesome. We loved it. It was really great. Great crowd. And the Guns N' Roses crowd usually is great. You know? They're there to have a good time, and they, they appreciate the openers. And I think there was probably, they probably appreciated us, especially because he was doing that. He was turning up late and doing stuff like that. Um, so we came off stage and Frankie, uh, bass player's brother, was there with his family. So we hung out with them for a bit, did a few photos and, like, all right, should we go back to the hotel? Yeah, let's do that. And got to about midnight, we we're in the hotel bar, sort of enjoying the, uh, the moment. And uh, Guns N' Roses still hadn't gone on stage. And we were off site doing the post-mortem in the hotel bar and they still hadn't gone on stage. Oh, crikey. There was, I mean, that was when um, I think... Uh, Bumblefoot, the guitar player, was playing with him. He loved us, you know. And I think he he uh, went to Axel and said, oh, you got to come see this band. They're fucking awesome. Ch- come check these guys out. Um, and I think that got in his head. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to think it was partly why he was so late. But I don't like sort of mocking him for that because I do think there's a bit of illness there. I don't think right. it can be... I don't think you can behave like that and, and, unless there's uh, some other factors in play. Yeah, of course. You know, because we we played with them more recently on the last one. This is the this is the situation I was about to tell you about actually, um, and uh, they're on time and brilliant. They played for hours, load of cover versions, loads of costume wow. changes. He had like five different coloured cowboy hats and five different coloured checkered shirts. It was just everything you'd hope to see, really. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, but when we did our set at, at Zurich, and I think Swiss crowds are notoriously quiet and if that if it isn't exactly what they're paid for they let you know um but by being silent and it's horrible you know it's, it's like pulling to, even in your own show it can be difficult um i find it very difficult here but uh, there was this one guy who was going and i singled him out in front of like i don't know why i did it in front of a hundred thousand people i was like what the fuck do you think what do you think guns and roses are going to come out and support themselves we're here to do a fucking job and it isn't easy and it isn't getting any easier because of cunts like you and all this sort of stuff. And, and as i was doing it and i was and i can't remember what i said because it was just a tirade i remember all of his friends just sort of walking away from him <laughs> and then he was just sort of standing there on his own being shouted at by an english guy it was brilliant Remember, I'm the one that has the mic. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that. <laughs> I've got all the power here. Yeah. So when, because for us as an audience, it seems like the darkness just kind of exploded, but it obviously wasn't just an overnight 
thing because it it never really is. But how did you deal with being shot to fame like that? Because it seemed like you were everywhere. I think you know what I don't think I did deal with it. That's that's the reality. Um, it's traumatic <laughs> because the struggle, which is never people, you know, the innocent bystander is not privy to the struggles that, that get you to that position. Really, um, the reason why it happened for us is because we worked so hard for such a long time and met such resistance. I think there's a lot of coolness in the UK music trade and it was sort of um the interest that we had from america was really pivotal in in their fortunes changing because we we would always get um a and r folk and you know some coming to multiple shows and saying and literally saying to us i'd love to sign you but i'm just not allowed um right and back in those days when you actually sold records and had record deals that mattered and that was actually the goal getting signed getting over that line was the goal because you couldn't see beyond that. You had no idea what being signed meant. Nobody prepares you for it. And and, and obviously now looking back, you realize that that's actually when the work starts. But, right. but to get to that point, you need to, you need people's, you need to change a lot of people's opinions about what you're doing, especially if you're doing something that's not fashionable. Um, so we had this, we had this resistance and it, and it got to the point where, we had Sony, Warners, um, it was actually East-West Warners. But I think, I seem to remember that we said, well, look, Atlantic in America wants to sign this, and that's a better logo. And I think they actually started the UK, or restarted the UK version of the Atlantic imprint for us. And they went on to sign other things like James Blunt and all that sort of stuff as well. I know everything that they've signed since. It was uh, Amit Ertigan's baby, obviously, it's a a legendary label that had um, Led Zeppelin and stuff on it, but mm-hmm. the UK version hadn't been active for a long time. And we were the band that made them do that um, because it's basically the same company as East West. It's all the same people, right? Uh, but it's called Atlantic and it has that uh, cachet and, you know, that power. And I love the logo. So, you know, so yeah, I mean, we got, it was only because of the interest in America that we managed to, you know, get anywhere i think because you were you kept being met with such resistance and you had been working your asses off for so long did it get to a point that you maybe had to have crisis talks and went we need to maybe we do need to try and fit in the bracket that they want us to be in certainly actually then we had there was a guy called simon price do you do you know do you know who that is is he, is he a music journalist? He is a music journalist. I do yeah. know, he's a, he, yeah, I do know Simon Price. He has a very distinctive look, if I remember. Yeah, exactly. You see, yeah. you, know, you know when he's in a show. Yes. And uh, I love him. He's just awesome. Yeah, he's he, great. He actually said, he said, uh, he gave us our first kind of national bit of exposure and he really seemed to care about the band. What he said was, a lot of people are dismissing this band as the um, gay ACDC, but they're not. They're the straight queen. <laughs> it's like, Wow. It's wow! An awesome piece of literature, you know, and it's just like we rode on that for a long time. Um, but he cared so much about the band that at one point he said he came he came to us and said, "Look, um, this thing's plateaued. You know, you need to do something to get it to the next level because the snowball has stopped." Um, this is when we were doing like the same kind of shows in London. Were, every show is different, but it's like the level wasn't changing, and it was 
And people like him were concerned that we wouldn't, you know, get kick on. And he really wanted us to. So um, we just thought, okay, we'll, we'll make, make the album ourselves. We'll do it ourselves. Because if we can't get a deal, we'll just do it ourselves. And then, so that's when we started doing um, independent releases. Like the first thing we released was that EP that we had, you know, used to try and get some label interest. Yeah. Uh, which had, I believe in a thing called Love, Love is Only Feeling and Love on the Rocks. We printed 200 copies of it. Um, and it got spot played once on Joe Wiley. And then there were a load of people phoned in saying, what was that? Or how can this band be allowed to exist? Or I love it. <laughs> These people should be killed uh, or, or knighted. It, was, it really divided the listenership. But surely that's what we want. That's, yeah. uh, as artists, that's what you want. There's no, I always say there's nothing worse than someone going, eh, it's fine. Yeah, but you don't realise that until you experience it. Yeah. You know, like you, you want everybody to like it. And then, but then it's a curious feeling when you realise that people hating it is just as exciting. <laughs> yeah. It takes a little minute to sink in and then you realise, oh, wow, I'm doing something right. Because, you know... Listen to the charts. It's all shit. It's all shit yeah. music. Why would, you want, why would you want to be popular? It's that thing you said earlier, actually. Yeah. You know. But also, you, you, you know, <clears throat> you've, you've stuck to your guns. And I think there's, there's such integrity to do that, I think, in any, you know, medium, you know, being an artist. Yeah, I think there's a good way. There's a way of, um, if you come out of the gates hard and you're a guitar band, there's a way to maintain your success um and i think that is if you listen to maroon five which was a guitar band coldplay which was a guitar band and had, had have maintained that top of the tree stadium selling status the, the way you do it is you gradually devolve your status as a guitar band and you become a singer and a producer and you can hardly hear the guitars on the more recent records of those bands but they're always in the charts. They're always called rock bands. It's insane. I mean, it's like uh, they've turned into pop. It's turned into pop music. Absolutely. 100%, but I mean, yeah. in, in the, you know, with a capital P and a small P. You know? Very much so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. When you said before you touched on, we were talking about fame and you said you don't think that you'd, dealt with it yeah, well. Yeah, so I got sidetracked, Craig. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. We, that's <laughs> the great thing about these conversations. We just jump around. Um, were you alluding to sort of your lifestyle at that time? Um, I've, yeah, well, not at first. I, I, I was going to say that um, when I got distracted by the struggle of it and sort of how an overnight success is never that. No. Um, I think what I was getting at was that... Uh, I had a lot of bitterness coming into fame because like, it was like, finally, motherfuckers, <laughs> finally. Right. Yeah, we've been doing this for fucking years and now we're famous. It's not us that's changed, it's you that changed. And I was bitter and I was angry. And I think I, um, my lifestyle choices were already questionable, Craig. I'm not going to pretend it was the fame that did that. It right, was, uh, okay. You know, I... Uh, my relationship with let's talk about drugs shall we yeah of course let's talk <laughs> I mean, about drugs i think um just because that's you know i mean that's the most obvious um that's the most obvious consistent mistake that i was making on a daily basis um and i think being famous and, and having a bit of money makes it easier to pull that off 
Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're you're sort of in an industry where it's prevalent, so you don't have to look very far to achieve uh, splashdown, and um, you've got money yeah. to spend on it. So I think it's difficult to resist if you're that way inclined, which I was. Um, but I, I had a uh, my family was, was affected by heroin uh, in a really acute way, and it was kind of like when I was when I was at college and. Um, throughout my 20s I was watching the impact of that um, on my family and it was devastating it was really heartbreaking and I was super anti everything I, I mean I still drank but um, uh, I drank to excess <laughs> and then and then I would stop um, but all the time like any for any other substances I was always very very anti because I'd seen what that particular drug was uh, was doing um, to, I mean, to friends of mine as well as my family as well. It's like, uh, I think in Lowestoft, it was really, there was for a period of time, it just seemed like everybody was, was using heroin. <laughs> well, yeah. Everybody that I knew. And um, there, was a, there was a death. One of my friends uh, didn't, didn't make it. And uh, so I was looking at all this um, stuff. And for a few years, I was... I just wouldn't go anywhere near anything that was uh, a class A or, or even, or even smoke any grass or anything like that, which I had experimented with as a teenager. Um, but then part of this character, um, you know, the, the guy that I need to tap into to be the guy, mm. um, I thought I wasn't convinced that I'd be able to pull it off unless I embraced the whole thing. And I really did um, find like after about seven or eight shows, I guess it was, I think we were playing at the Bull and Gate. I had my first experience with, uh, with uh, cocaine, but not, not on, on the show, on the night before the show. Right. And unfortunately, the show on the day afterwards, I completely smashed it. I was a different person. I was a different animal altogether and I didn't recognize myself, but I loved it and it was awesome. And um, so then there was a period of time <laughs> the next few years where all of my shows were like that. I, I, I honestly think there, was, there, was a, there probably was a period of about two or three years where I didn't come off stage thinking I'd absolutely smashed it. And that's not because I was doing drugs before or during the show, although that did start to happen when we became super successful. Right. Um, it was just, it was, I was always kind of waiting till afterwards to do the party, but I was just turning up really fucked, really, really informed by that drug experience. Um, I was, uh, I was skinny. I was, uh, weirdly fit and just experimenting with stuff that was expanding my mind and changing my self-perception um, and when I was, when I was walking on stage, there was nobody else that you would look at in a room. I was completely in control and, yeah. it, was, and it was awesome. You know, I just, it, I would, I definitely put a lot of that development down to the cocaine. Um, but the problem starts when you do it on show day. <laughs> that's, that's, that's when it gets really, really unmanageable. And I'm sure not just, and you know, not just for yourself, the problem stop, but I suppose it's for the people surrounding you as well. Yeah. I'm not here to throw anybody under any buses, but it, you know, when I was misbehaving, I wasn't flying solo in those, in those ventures. I was, sure. I was just a little bit worse than everybody else. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's always that one that was going to take it 
to extremes. Yeah. And with my family and, history, I was kind of, I don't know why I didn't recognize that that was a possibility. <laughs> yeah. mm. So I think we all needed a bit of guidance, should we say? Where, when did that, and where did that guidance come along? Did, I mean, did somebody pull you aside and said this, uh, were cracks starting to show? Was it, yeah, was it were I mean, you worried that it was going to destroy everything that you'd worked so hard? No, because I didn't, I didn't, um, I stopped seeing it as work and I started seeing it as my existence. So it wasn't like, um, I didn't value it in the same way that you would if you'd sort of spent generations building up a, sh- a business like a shoe factory or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have that sort of sense of investment in the things that I'd achieved. I just thought, well, this is what happens when you're me. <laughs> and just, <laughs> and when, I'm, when I say me, I mean me, like in inverted commas, you know, like yeah. the, the guy that I had turned into. Um, so I think there's a bit of truth in that, actually. You know, now as a sober person of, of 15 years, I still yeah. think there's a bit of truth in that. I, t- I think that if you believe in what you're doing, you write good songs and you, you know, I put the work in with my guitar playing as well. I do actually practice and I do actually try and develop as an artist. I don't, I don't just show up and behave like a dickhead and expect it all to happen. Um, but that is, um, that did seem to be the difference between being a band that's at that level and then a band that's at the top level. Yeah, It did seem to have a, I could see a correlation between how bad my behavior was and how successful the band was for, for a while. Mm. I mean, I do think it sort of backfired when there's a, there's a point when it breaks and that, that correlation doesn't apply anymore. And what you need to do is recognize it. And it takes years to recognize it, I think, because it's the sort of thing that takes hold um, easily. It's like a bot fly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And also I'm sure your sense of perception uh, about, is completely thrown out the window. I think um, also, also like the people that you bounce things off, you know, when you change your personality, you can't expect your real friends to stick around. You just can't. No. You know, I mean, real, I mean, obviously they're always there for you, but when you're not you, you can't expect them to be there. No, of course not. So, you know, your, your whole, I don't know, I suppose it's your, your focus group, like we all, all of us have a focus group, don't we? Whether it's your cat, you know, your cat will tell you which kind of food it likes and it, you know what I mean? And Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and if he, if you're, yeah, we all need the focus group. Even you if do. We, yeah. It takes time to realize that we do need it. Mm. We really do. Yeah. But when your focus group changes um, to people that like you when you're behaving like that, you're in a lot of trouble, you know, you're in serious trouble. And I, and I remember the first person that um, took me to one side, might surprise you, it was James Hetfield from the Metallica. <laughs> really? Yeah, was, yeah. He, because uh, we were on tour with them in, in Australia on a big day out tour and he could see it. Um, and he was like, uh, give me, give me his number and numbers of people that I could talk to and, and, whenever whenever i was sober on that tour we were talking and um i don't know because i think it's like a, a certain part of a certain type of recovery it helps um it helps you to try and uh help other people i think doesn't it it's part yeah. of the part of the experience of it i mean i've never done the 12 steps thing i i had a different approach but um i think that was part of his recovery 
as opposed to mine. But but he was it was definitely a person that recognised it and took me to one side. Meanwhile, somebody else in his band who shall remain nameless, but I will just say this: it, it, it rhymes with Sars. <laughs> God, you can spit it out. <laughs> Sars um, Gull Gullbrick. Very good. Um, he meantime, meanwhile, I was misbehaving with him, <laughs> so, and he was he was pulling me in the other direction. Um, so, you know, I was already kind of, I knew by about 2004 that there was a, a, something I needed to address. And I, I tried to do a, a few different things. Um, uh, the label actually recommended, um, a, uh, a guy who would show up on his moped and then talk to me about my problems. <laughs> How did that work out? Uh, Well, it was a little bit like um, trying to lasso a herd of stampeding cattle. You know, right. I don't think uh, it touched the sides, really, and it cost me a lot yeah. of money. I had to pay for his moped journeys as well as the actual kind of um, therapy. Sessions, yeah. Yeah, and um, and I wasn't ready to listen to it, really. So, Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's what I was going to touch on. You know, you can be having... You can be getting pulled aside by certain members of other groups and said, look, you know, I can see what you're going through because I've been through it and you need to do this. But you have to be ready within yourself mm. to even begin to start talks about getting sober at that point. And obviously, you just weren't ready. Mm. So what was the point when you believed that you should get sober so you listened to yourself? Um, I can't, Craig, I can't talk about that moment yet. I'm not ready for it. Okay. It was, uh, something something happened, and uh, I have to. Uh, <laughs> I can't really. That's Justin. That's absolutely fine. Man. But, you I know, I think that's. Not, but but just to just to you know what I can say is, uh, um, it's the same with anybody. I think it's not. You know, you can you can be v- aware that there's something that needs to change, but something will actually come and change it. Yeah. Um, and something will happen that's. Uh, that will haunt you. I mean, it does, but what happened haunts me now. And Mate, so you just, I don't want, I don't I want think to carry on down what, this road. I want okay, you to feel yeah, as comfortable as okay, possible. But I, you I know just, that. And we're I, having such a lovely conversation. Yeah, so. no, thanks, man. You know, do you know what, man? That's 15 years sober. So, and I have to say, and people listen to this and I'm not just blowing smoke at you look fantastic <laughs> you do look right I'm very jealous I did have a shower the, the, and, the, and a shave the <laughs> yeah, no, you look great too don't worry about it um, but I think you know I, I know I know I don't want to leave a gaping hole in your broadcast so I'm just going to say You're not this going to. I don't, this is the very nature of these conversations and that's why I started this all these years ago and we have such varied talks with all sorts of people in the creative industry and I love it so much so this yeah. is just another brilliant conversation you don't okay. need to worry about nothing okay well it's helping me to talk about it to a degree although I did nearly cry so <laughs> maybe I needed to but you know they, I think um the problem with it is like when you have that moment when something changes your attitude and makes you realize you've got to change your behavior. Mm. Um, it's the same thing as getting signed as a band. That's actually when the work starts. And um, as I said before, I didn't do the 12 step thing. I don't go to meetings. I don't do anything like that. I just, uh, I just hold on to what happened. <laughs> you know? Sure. And, um, but because I think 
that's a traumatic event, but there's a lot of other stuff that happens when you're famous and when you're, as you said before, like suddenly shot to stardom or, or you know, you, you, you're, everyone knows who you are suddenly. I do think that there's some, something about that that's really traumatic um, and takes a lot of adjusting. Um, so even at the point when you stop, your brain doesn't go back to being normal. I think that there's probably chemical stuff that needs to realign. There's, um, you know, just I think there's psychological elements of it. I mean, I, I, when I stopped drinking and doing all that stuff, I actually uh, took myself out of the band, which was a big mistake, um, kind of. What I should have done is had, a, had it as a, a genuine hiatus and actually said, look, I need this period of time to work on myself. But I didn't. I actually just put it all away, and I, I think I did that as a sort of um, as a as an exercise, really, to sort of say, "Look, these are the things that are going to trigger me. <laughs> this this is the person. This is the project that's made me into what I am. And I got to deconstruct everything, and I can't do it. Um, so, if you're still in it, yeah. If I'm still in it, I didn't think I would be able to pull it off. Um, there's no way of knowing whether that was accurate or not really, but uh, that was the decision I made at the time. And I think, I do think 15 years sober is a, you know, it does show you that there might've been some wisdom in, in the, in the choices that I made at that moment. Cause I do think I would be dead. That's something that I, I'm pretty sure I would have been dead by now. Um, so, you know, I felt like at the time it had to happen, but it was really damaging to my relationship with my brother. Um, less importantly, the rest of the band and everything gets mended and people forget and time is a, a, a great healer. Absolutely. And we're back working and, and we've, and I, but for the first sort of two or three albums, my main motivation for, for working was to make it up to my brother and to a lesser extent, the other guys. Um, it's only now, like the last couple of albums, I think, where I've got, <laughs> I've got other things in my life that I need to worry about, where I'm, you know, writing from a, the point of view of somebody who actually has something to say, you know. So I think, I think the journey, that, that 10 years, you can't really call it 10 years or 15 years sober. I think the first 10 years of it is a period of adjustment to sober life and, right. you know, putting a reset on the character <clears throat> that I'd created and trying to find a different character. It's, it's one long identity crisis, as I'm probably... <laughs> Which we've never... <laughs> going right back to the change of personalities at the school, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought of it like that, but actually moving around at school is, is probably the one th- has been a real... Um, really helped me to prepare for this lifestyle, mm. you know. But you do strike me as a, an artist. It's funny you say that about taking yourself out of the band, you know, that situation at that time. But you always strike me as somebody that, that needs to create, whether it's on the guitar or you need to write. Is there, is there still that need with your artistry? Yeah. I, I mean, there, there always was as well. Like mm. I couldn't stay away from it for long. I just couldn't do it as, with the darkness, really. Yeah. Um, so I started doing other stuff, you know, I had another band and everything, but... But really, that was keeping my hand in. I wanted to work with some extraordinary musicians and see what, what gigging with people like that was. And what I noticed was that whilst I love those people and they're amazing players, like to the, like to the level of, I would say, uh, they've got to be on the spectrum for them to be as good as they were. You know, there's, there's some, something like an autism or an Asperger's thing that, that makes them as good as they are. Because um, I've never experienced musicianship like that before. But... But it didn't have 
the magic. And I don't think that's something that you can really stay away from. And I don't know whether it's the magic because there's a, my brother was in the band or the magic because of the songs or something about, something about the alchemy of the, five, the four people that, that are involved, you know. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's all the elements that yeah. come together. It's a bit like, you know, we were talking about singing before, you know, you're talking that guy that's got like six octaves, whatever. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure lots of, I was, you know, they tried to teach me singing at drama school and failed miserably. I think, mm. you know, some people say you can teach singing, but with things like that, it's just a gift. It's just there. Mm. And it's a bit like the magic. It's the elements have all been put there and it's right time, right place. And that's the, and if you take one, one element away, yeah, it ain't there, is it? I think that's true. And I think, um, when we first uh, when we first started it off, it was kind of like you could feel that it was special, and you, but you can't. I mean, I've been in bands with my brother before. It wasn't because of that. Been in bands with Frankie before. It wasn't because of that. Uh, there was just something about it, mm. and uh, you know, you can feel it. And people could feel it, but you know, right place, right time. We were we were right place, wrong time. I think we would have done yeah. much better in the seventies and eighties because I think that we would have had less sort of resistance to it as a, as a genre, mm. you know, um, rock music with guitar solos was certainly not in the charts, um, in the noughties. Um, but, mm-hmm. it, but it, I think it was in the eighties and the seventies. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in the nineties, nineties was a bit of a great reset for guitar music really. And I love some of it, so I'm not, not even knocking it really, but uh, yeah. it's just part of the, of the, you know, evolution of it really. But, um, yeah, so I think right place, wrong time, but we made it the right time because we kept on going, you know, so when the right time came and the zeitgeist was there to be captured, we had the net and we were ready for it. Yeah. Um, we were ready for it musically, but we weren't ready for it as personalities. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, that. It, basically, it was like Robert, Sh- Robert Shaw. It was Quint. We just we had, we had we had yeah we had the uh, we had the equipment that you need to land the shark, um, except for the boat itself, which uh, wasn't big enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Justin, this has been everything and more. What a lovely, lovely conversation! Thanks so much, man, for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. I've loved it too. Actually, it's been quite Brilliant. cathartic. Actually. That's what I aim for. Yeah. Um, well, look, all the best with everything moving into the tour and uh, lots of love. I'm going to go and have another cup of tea and I suggest you do that too. Enjoy it. Take care, my friend. Nice one, Craig. Thanks. And another episode is done. What did I tell you? How great is he? So lovely. And obviously you heard that we got into some sort of avenues that, that you know, Justin didn't want to go down and I certainly didn't want to push or explore that anymore because, as well you know, I want everybody to feel that they can talk about, you know, what they want to and they can shut things down. He certainly didn't shut it down. Um, I feel he was trying to explain why he... didn't feel ready to talk about things and that is to be respected I hope um, I was uh, respectful in that way I hope that came across because I truly was I didn't want I would never ever want um, a guest to feel uncomfortable at all Um, but we ended the call 
we ended the recording and then we carried on talking for another 15 minutes. Um, he's great, great company. And I'm really thrilled that he came on. Um, uh, I should have said there's quite a bit of swearing as well, shouldn't I? Oh, well, you know, you're used to that by now. And, uh, sorry, mum, if you're listening to this. So, uh, you know where we are. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email us to shoppod at gmail.com. See, I know the emails. No flies on me. Um, drop us a message on Twitter. Come say hello on Instagram. Um, do all the things that you need to do to get involved, really. Um, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Shall we get together next week and do it all again with somebody else? Yeah, I think we should. Well, until next Thursday, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care, I'll see you next week. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.